You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 5th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, France takes a firm stance on the Israel-Gaza conflict as Emmanuel Macron warns that wiping out Hamas will take a decade. Also ahead, the US issues a warning to Houthi rebels in Yemen after three commercial ships in the Red Sea are attacked using drones. Plus, they are holding aid for Israel and Ukraine hostage to changes to the asylum system that would destroy the asylum system, things that they could not get done through regular order. There's paralysis in Congress over President Biden's request for more than $100 billion in funding for national security and resources for Ukraine. Plus, Charles Hecker is here to have a look at today's papers. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Emma. We're going to follow an explosive spy scandal unfolding in the United States. We'll learn that Boris Johnson planned on invading the Netherlands during the pandemic. Uh, We'll look at another application of the blockbuster drug Ozempic. And finally, we'll ask what Japanese people ate more than a thousand years ago. Thank you. And we look ahead to a cosy season with Monocle's latest edition of Alpino. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in the news. The US has charged a former ambassador to Bolivia with spying for Cuba for more than 40 years. Demonstrations have been held in New Zealand against what protesters call racist policies introduced by the new government. And temperatures in parts of Siberia have plummeted to minus 56 degrees with record snowfall and disrupted flights across Russia. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, world leaders tend to offer unequivocal support to their allies, knowing or indeed hoping that were disaster to befall them, they could count on reciprocated backing. But the events in Gaza and Israel have forced a rethink of where the international community stands. The US, for example, a forthright backer of Israel, is now warning against a repetition in the south of the IDF's campaign in the north. And now the French president, Emmanuel Macron, has stepped in, saying Israel must more precisely define what it seeks to accomplish in its war on Hamas. Well, I'm joined now by Philippe Malier, who's Professor of French and European Politics at University College London. A very good morning to you, Philippe. Good morning. So what was it exactly that Emmanuel Macron said? Well, he was uh, over the weekend at a COP28 uh, summit uh, in uh, Dubai. And yeah, he took a very strong stand on on the situation in the Middle East, uh, saying that, you know, uh, he's said to be appalled by the death toll on the Palestinian side. And he says, well, um, it's not worth it. It's absolutely uh, that uh, that uh, those uh, deaths have to have to stop. So he's now calling for a truce uh, very soon and hopefully followed. That's what he would like, followed by a permanent ceasefire. So that's a new position because you may remember that initially uh, Emmanuel Macron was very much on board with the American 
position or policy of unconditional support uh, for, for Israel. You know, in the, in the days following the Hamas's attack on the 7th of October, um, he didn't have the, the sort of uh, reservation, if you like, with regards to Israel's uh, uh, sort of attacking or retaliating uh, for the terrorist attack. And so it's changed. And I think there's a, there's a number of reasons for, for, for the change. And I think uh, you may remember, I think, a point of comparison, which might be helpful uh, for, for the listeners, is that you, you may remember when the Ukraine war started, that Macron was also a little bit derided for his balancing act, because we can talk about a balancing act, you know, talking to Putin very late on the day, and he was criticized by his by his allies. And I think that's a bit the same. I think French diplomats uh, with whom he has a quite fraught relationship were unhappy about the pro-Israeli stand of Macron. Uh, traditionally, the French diplomacy uh, cultivates close relations with, with uh, Arabic countries. So th- this is where, where we are, you know, from a kind of unconditional support, there has been a shift lately, and that culminated over the weekend in Dubai by a strong stand and calling Israel for you know you know you know an end to to the uh, to the uh, retaliation in Palestine, saying well the death toll is amazing, and also what is the set objective of Israel? That's what he questioned publicly. Uh, is it the complete elimination of Hamas? And he said he he showed he was doubtful about that. He said he would it would take about ten years to achieve that. It is. It's this this idea that the war will last ten years is a, is the line which has made the the headlines all over the world because perhaps for the first time you see a senior world leader being incredibly practical and realistic about what is going on in Israel and and Gaza. Yes, I think for for once you might say that Macron he is sort of. Uh, feeling, understanding where public opinion in the West is going. And I think increasingly, although, of course, a a majority of the population remain in support of of Israel and are quite appalled by what happened on the 7th of October, I think now that the question is, how long uh, is it going to to, to go on uh, uh, in, in Gaza? Uh, what is going to be the death toll? The complete destruction of of Gaza uh, and its infrastructure is also a big concern, and also the the aftermath of the war. What what plan is there? A peace plan, or is it as one says, you know, uh, in some quarters that you know Israel is now kind of planning with the, the support of the U.S. and possibly some Arabic countries to evacuate some of the of the Gazaui population outside Gaza. Tell me a little bit more about what Emmanuel Macron is achieving here. The the fact is is that you I mean you mentioned his trip to Russia, several trips to Russia in the, in the run up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the fact that he was prepared to go there, wear out the shoe leather, and indeed talk directly to Vladimir Putin, something that other leaders weren't doing. He stood up now and has spoken some rather dare I say, unpleasant home truths about the long-term difficulties that that Israel and and Gaza face. What is it about Emmanuel Macron that makes him wish to go out there and say these things? I think it's a combination of two things, essentially. The first one is is really real real politic. I think one one sees that the uh, sort of uh, the, the current Israeli strategy is extremely risky, you know, because... Uh, there are very few experts uh, arguing that the eradication of Hamas 
and its uh, members uh, can be complete and 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 and, and achieve that's that's uh, uh, something impossible then what's next as i said for the gaza repopulation uh, it, it's all very extremely grim and and again without any any plan notably a peace plan uh, that might happen over again in an, in a future. So Macron on that is simply just realistic. The second point is, is that Macron is probably feeling that, as I said, the mood is changing. And I think uh, there's very little appetite now for the continuation of the war as it, as it stands, uh, because there's no there's no really proper positive outcome. You know, it's got it's going to be an incredible death toll, a complete devastation of Gaza, and then and then. So I think he's feeling that and he's also feeling that in Europe, although Germany, the UK are very much still on board with the with the US, I think there are other capitals who are sort of becoming also increasingly critical to start with Spain, for instance, has been vocal in its support of the of the um, the fate of the, pop, uh, the the Palestinian population, not not of course support of, of, of Hamas, but the, what is happening to the to the Palestinians. So I think for all that, Macron is trying probably to adopt again. It's the traditional balancing act, uh, very gaullist, you know. Named you know, Charles de Gaulle uh, had this idea that between uh, during the Cold War, in between the U.S. and the U.S.S.R., France had a role to play in 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 international relations and affairs. And probably playing that card, you know, France being uh, a, a sort of not a big a big power, but at least someone all the nations can can talk to and relate to that. That's why I think he's now uh, pushing this new agenda forward. And what does this mean for France's position on the world stage when you have a leader who will be so outspoken? I mean, he used the uh, press conference at COP in Dubai to use to talk about this. That's quite unusual because that's not what he was supposed to do. You know, he was uh, that that meeting is all to talk about the climate change. It means that yes, there is uh, there's urgency. I think uh, he, he knows that, and I think uh, uh, because clearly the the, the kind of uh, Israeli strategy seems to, to 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 lead to a dead end. And I think you, if you if you read between the lines, that's what the Americans themselves are, are starting to say. So probably feeling all that, he says, well. I'm going to be ahead of the pack and and be the leader and try to do something uh, to put an end to, to to those massacres both sides. Tell us what this now means for him back at home. I mean, having made his point so publicly on the world stage, the fact remains is that this how this one wonders how this will affect the domestic issues with a very large Jewish and and significant Muslim community within France. That's that's correct. France has the biggest Muslim uh, population in Europe, as well as the biggest Jewish community. So both are, are extremely important. And and I think what traditionally international relations, you know, you don't score political points or gains with with that. But I think the issue here is, as you know. Uh, across the world, so sensitive. People are, you know, taking a very close interest in that, and emotions run very high. And I think on that he will sort of meet and get support in France. I think the public opinion is shifting, uh, although uh, of course there's still a majority of people uh, saying that Israel uh, ought to defend itself. It has this right, and 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 people wishing Israel well in general, but. I think again the death toll, the destruction of of, of Gaza, is is too much also for the French uh, for the French public. And I think 
I think his stand will go down well, in my opinion. I think he will get support uh, from the left and also uh, from the right and, and Marine, Marine Le Pen's far right. Well, tell us a little bit about the way that Marine Le Pen has been has been navigating this. I mean, she's um, she said, uh, we have seen what we thought we'd never see again in history, pogroms where women, children and men were killed uniquely because they were Jews. Uh, she denounced those who support or excuse or relativise the insupportable, the unbearable, some of whom are sitting in this chamber. And she she absolutely ex- exploded the narrative, isn't didn't she? Because in the context of a, a large amount of historical problems with anti-Semitism within the far right in France. Yes, absolutely. That's a very interesting development. Le, Le Pen and her party, you know, traditionally, uh, the party was uh, founded by her father, Jean, Jean-Marie, in the 1970s with uh, a very uh, weird group of people, uh, former Waffen-SS, uh, people who had uh, t- played a, a role in the Vichy regime, uh, partisans of French Algeria, so against decolonization of Algeria. So that, that was the kind of people. And Le Pen is very well known for his anti-Semitic uh, uh, quips and remarks. He's, he was condemned several times times. Uh, and, and Marine Le Pen never sort of publicly said that, yes, my father is, is an anti-Semite, never. So surprisingly now you have Marine Le Pen and a party who were able very freely to march against anti-Semitism a couple of weeks ago in a big march organized in Paris. Uh, that would have been absolutely unthinkable just a few years ago. And she is a, a self-declared, you know, a pro-Israeli, pro-Israel, and so it shows that you you can have sort of a dark areas in terms of, you know, the anti-Semitic past of the party and also probably the present uh, and be absolutely uh, in favor of supporting Israel. So the two seem to be working together. Let's also remember that that Marine Le Pen is, is pro-Russia and Putin in, 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 in the war between Ukraine and and, and Russia. So that, that's that's a funny mix in terms of uh, international relation, but that's pretty much where the, the far right is today. Philippe Marlier, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. a.m. in Sanaa, 7.14 a.m. here in London. Now, until now, fears of a major regional escalation caused by the Israel-Hamas conflict have remained, thankfully, unrealised. But this weekend, rebels from the Iran-backed Houthi movement in Yemen attacked several ships believed to be linked to Israel in the Red Sea. A U.S. warship in the area responded to the distress calls made by the vessels, shooting down three drones. Well, I'm joined now by Sanam Vakil, Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham house. Sanam, good morning. Good morning. Um, Just explain to us, I sort of briefly introduced this, but this requires a little bit of explanation, doesn't it? What exactly happened in the Red Sea? Yes, it does indeed. Uh, So over the weekend, um, three commercial ships uh, were attacked and the U.S. also responded um, by shooting down drones um, launched from uh, North Yemen, where the Houthis are based. Uh, The Houthis are supported by Iran, uh, but they're an indigenous Yemeni group that have been um, involved in a long-time war. Um, And most recently, uh, there have been rumors that um, after over a decade of fighting, uh, the Houthis have come to a sort of truce agreement that would be formalized um, between themselves and the Saudi government. Uh, This has not yet been made public. suggesting that uh, these uh, formalization of the truce is, is quite um, vulnerable to the broader regional conflict. The Houthis are um, 
very uh, involved, uh, very anti-Israeli. Certainly, uh, there is a degree of Iranian support for their operations. The attacks on vessels um, in um, the Bab al-Mandab have um, specifically targeted uh, ships um, that have uh, some connectivity with Israel or um, have some sort of Israeli um, ownership. Uh, and this um, really sheds light on uh, the broader risk of escalation and regionalization of the Israeli war. Indeed. I mean, the fact that Iran has been mentioned suddenly gets everybody on edge. And, and the fact that it is happening in the Red Sea um, is an, it's an incredibly busy shipping lane. Um, and we now have ship owners saying we need more military protection on maritime routes in the east because our ships aren't safe. Yes, indeed. And this really shows, um, again, that that there are broader regional risks that might be priced in uh, uh, to the oil and gas market. Um, and there hasn't been much reaction, um, but uh, actually uh, risk is increasing. And the longer uh, Israel's uh, military operation in Gaza continues, uh, the greater the risk of uh, this war uh, spreading. Iran is is really uh, walking a very delicate line here. Iranian groups are using uh, this activity, uh, be it um, in uh, the Red Sea and on the Bab al-Mandab, this very narrow shipping lane, um, as well as on the border uh, with Israel and Lebanon, where Lebanese Hezbollah is also engaged in low-level attacks um, on a day-to-day basis, uh, to pressure uh, Israel to limit um, the war in Gaza. And this is also bringing the United States involved. Indeed, Washington said that they, they have every reason to believe that the attacks are fully enabled by Iran. How helpful is a comment like that? Well, I mean, it speaks uh, truth to power. Saying that the attacks are enabled by Iran literally means that the Iranians have for many years been providing the Houthis with material and financial support, uh, providing training and equipment um, that uh, leave the Houthis uh, with an arsenal of missiles and drones. Uh, They do have agency. That's what's important to remember. The Houthis are not in a command and control relationship um, with Tehran, uh, but uh, there is certainly coordination and um, all of these parties are trying to assert uh, their influence. And um, it it shows us the Iranian axis of resistance, uh, which is, again, Hezbollah, the Houthis, groups in Iraq, groups in Syria, um, and of course, um, also connected to Hamas, um, are very strategically positioned um, across the region also on key waterways um, that can destabilize uh, the region as well as uh, commercial shipping. Sanam Vakil, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme, a brand new edition of our festive newspaper, Monocle Alpino, hits the newsstands today. We'll leaf through some of the highlights with Monocle's foreign editor, Alexis Self. It's really fun to put this together because it's to do with the Northern Hemisphere winter. So we've got pieces on Arctic geopolitics and pieces on ski wear and cashmere. Stay tuned for more on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
look now at today's newspapers. I'm delighted to say joining me in the studio is Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks, but not doing that at the moment because he's still on gardening leave writing a book. He's not on gardening leave, he's on book leave. I'm on book leave. I think it's called sabbatical. Is it? Emily. Is that yes. what the word is? Right. About Russian... You're sitting around a lot writing and thinking. Trying. Uh, yeah, trying about Russian international business, so thinking rather well, I'd assume. Um <laughs> I digress. What have you picked up? There's this astonishing story about spies in Cuba and Bolivia. Emma, there is just the most dramatic spy scandal unfolding in the United States as we speak. So we go to the New York Times for our first story, where the headline says, Retired U.S. diplomat accused of working as a secret agent for Cuba. And here we see the story of an individual called Manuel Rocha, who is retired and now 73 years old, but has a long-standing career in Washington, in the State Department, and as ambassador to Bolivia— who has since at least the 1980s, apparently, been spying on behalf of Cuba, who the New York Times tells us has a very, very sophisticated intelligence agency and who has basically passed them any and all of the information that has been coming across his desk, across his entire diplomatic career. Um, And we've got... Um, the attorney general weighing in on this. We've got the FBI weighing on this. We have intelligence agencies um, doing what they can to to unwind all of this. And there's a lot yet to come. One wonders, 40 years is a very, very long time not to have been spotted. Um, well, apparently he is very, very good at what he's <laughs> Clearly <very> doing. Clearly very good. <laughs> um, and he's also, he's been assisted um, by the Cuban spy agency, we're told in the New York Times, um, they've told him how to behave. They've told him what sort of ideological lines to take. They've told him how to avoid detection. They've told him how to sort of be a good boy and not raise suspicion. He's been coached and he's been assisted by the Cubans all this time. Um, the paper also says he's quite a clever guy. He has an undergraduate uh, degree from Yale University. He went to Harvard. He went to Georgia. This is the perfect pedigree for a Washington diplomat. So he's pushed all the right buttons. He's done all the right things. He's had a good career. He ended up as an ambassador. And and indeed, we've got another career diplomat. There's a very good article in the New York Times, if you want to read the backstory to this. This It's so interesting. It says a former career diplomat said that this guy literally had the keys to the kingdom. If it had to do with Cuba, he got to see it. How much damage has he done? Um, Well, it's entirely possible that he's done quite a lot of damage. Um, And that is, you know, it's early to assess just how much. Um, But naturally, Cuba particularly, you know, when you go back a few decades, um, Cuba has been um, a strategic enemy. It's been a tactical enemy. Um, It has been an ideological opponent. It's been a source of, of discourse on migration and, and, and immigration politics. It's been extremely influential in the way Florida has grown up as a uh, political and commercial entity. Um, and, and this is yet just another one of a story of, of individuals that the United States recently has been discovering has been working on behalf of foreign governments. And the issue is here is that this is a rather old school operation insofar as this is way before the days of email and WhatsApp and, and this. This is just, this is, you know, face-to-face stuff. 
Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely right. Um, and there is a certain amount of, of genuine sort of spy craft involved in all of this and in the ways that he's alleged to have had information sent back and forth and, and, and how he communicated um, with his handlers in Havana. Um, this is, I mean, we're just scratching the tip of this story. Um, and unfortunately, as it unfolds, it will increasingly embarrass the Washington establishment. Okay, let's move to something which... Uh, so we have Boris Johnson's uh, appearance before the COVID inquiry is imminent. We're all looking forward to that. Um, one of the lines that is expected to come out is that the Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister, pro- plotted a military raid on a Dutch COVID plant. That's right. The newspapers today are filled with stories in advance of the prime minister, the former prime minister, as you point out, um, with his upcoming appearance before the COVID-19 inquiry. And so we go to the Times with the headline that says, Boris Johnson plotted military raid on Dutch COVID plant. And, and if you cast your mind back to um, our lockdown days, you will recall that there was a sort of cross-channel spat about the ability of AstraZeneca vaccines, um, many of which are manufactured here in the UK, but some of which were manufactured in plants in Europe. And one of those plants was in the Netherlands. And they were withholding the export of vaccine. And so what the Times tells us is that Boris Johnson was consulting with special forces and asking them to put together a plan to raid a factory in a sovereign nation. Charles, are we serious here or is this just one of Boris Johnson's thing? We know he was he was he was never a man for understatement. And one wonders how, how far did this plan actually go? Well, that, that's the thing you have to wonder when you use the word serious and Boris Johnson in, in the same sentence. But it apparently was something that was actively considered because what the time the, what the Times tells us um, is that. He was advised by his diplomatic and military advisors that this wouldn't be a very wise thing to do and that he ran the risk of causing a major international incident if he actually pushed forward with it. So it was something that he he asked the military special forces to do and they politely demurred. This, This, well, the fact that they politely demurred and the fact that you mentioned there that people were saying, really, this is not a good idea suggests that there are or were indeed cool heads still within the the corridors of power. But the fact that the United Kingdom had got to that stage where the Prime Minister is considering a military raid on an ally and, by the sea, neighbours' vaccination stocks suggests that there's some, there was something wild going on in Downing Street. So this is why the broader testimony leading up to today's appearance by the prime minister has been so incredibly gripping. Um, and that is until today, everyone other than the prime minister has been talking about what was going on behind the scenes at Downing Street. Um, and the overall impression that's come out of that testimony is that the scene was incredibly chaotic and and that the prime minister was referred to as the trolley because of how he was sort of careening around directionless when it came to the decisions that had to be made um, about pandemic management. Um, and, And so the stage has been set for him to either sink or save his reputation as the director of the nation's pandemic response. Now, let's move on to a story from the Financial Times, the continuing tale of Ozem pick um, in a drug developed to help people with diabetes now becoming the wonder drug for people who want a smaller waistline where where are we with this apart from the fact that novo nordisk the the company is now becoming a household name and everyone's buying shares it's also becoming one of the wealthiest companies in the world and is up there sort of with the 
uh, oil giants and the tech giants um, in, in its revenues. We're going to the Financial Times with a headline that says Novo Nordisk seeks to use obesity drug findings to prevent weight gain. And you're absolutely right, Emma, in all the things that you've described that Ozempic does. Um, it treats diabetes. It causes weight loss. And what scientists at the Danish giant are thinking about now is additional research um, into whether or not you can give patients Ozempic to prevent them from gaining weight in the first place. And scientists at Novo Nordisk have called this the holy grail. Um, and it's an interesting story in the FT because it, it, it discusses a lot of the questions that this kind of potential treatment raises. And that is, you know, who would you give this to? How much will it cost? Um, what impact would it have on other weight reduction treatments and, and strategies. And then the final thing is, would you have to take this forever, as is the case with Ozempic? I mean, you've jo jokingly said before we started this, put it, sign me up and put it in the water. There is, <laughs> and, but it, there's a slightly serious point to this, isn't there? That if, if you... If you prevent problems down the line, then obviously a government is, if it has the resources, is going to do this. But, but it does ask that back that question, doesn't it? Do you try to keep a nation healthy by encouraging it to move around and eat better, or do you just say, well, whack something in the water, or everybody will be dependent on drugs, and it all goes slightly dystopian at that point? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, so there are a couple of ways of looking at this. And, you know, as we enter mince pie season. Uh, and, and, and Enter we, uh, mince pie season. Uh, oh, sorry. Perpetual okay. habit. I'm a perpetual resident. <laughs> well, I'm playing catch up in that case. Um, but um, so nations and national health services here and around the world give their patients lots of types of drugs to prevent lots of types of disease, including cancer, including cardiac disease, including all kinds, you know, d dementia. Um, and so if you consider obesity to be genuinely a disease rather than overindulging in mince pies, then is it in the national interest to do something to prevent that? And the answer from Novo Nordisk is fairly clearly yes. It's just working out whether the drug will work. Finally, if you were living in uh, Japan a while ago, no need for a Zempic because what you were eating wasn't very nice. Or well, that's in your opinion. Well, that, that's right. So we're in the Japan Times and we're looking at a headline that says, the quest to recreate what the Japanese ate 1,300 years ago. And so, you know, as we're exploring the origins of one of the world's most celebrated cuisines, um, the quick answer is you're right. No Ozempic necessary. Um, most of what Japanese people were eating more than 1,000 years ago was dried fish. Some of it was dried straight from the sea. Some of it was dried straight after boiling. Um, and But it's a fascinating story about um, archaeology, um, about cooking, about um, historical records, uh, and um, how a nation um, that is surrounded by water um, fed itself. It's, it's just a, it's a fascinating piece. And how food in its, all its forms really doesn't change over the millennia. Although maybe I won't be having my dried fish with a mince pie. Charles Hecker, thank you for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time is 7.31 here in London. A quick look now at the latest headlines. The U.S. has charged a former ambassador to Bolivia with spying for Cuba for more than 40 years. Victor Manuel Rocha is accused of acting as an illegal foreign agent and using a fraudulently obtained passport. The Justice Department says it's one of the longest-lasting infiltrations of the U.S. government by a foreign agent. 
Demonstrations have been held in New Zealand against what protesters call racist policies introduced by the new government. The new centre-right government of the National Party, New Zealand First and ACT New Zealand, was elected last month and the three parties' coalition agreement outlines, among other things, plans to wind back the use of the Maori language. And temperatures in parts of Siberia have plummeted to minus 56 degrees with a record snowfall and disrupted flights across Russia. Temperatures of minus 50 Celsius have become less common in recent years because of climate change. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, the White House has warned that unless emergency military aid is approved soon, there will be no more money to help Ukraine defend itself against the Russian invasion. It comes at a critical time in the war as Ukraine struggles to push back Russian troops in a counteroffensive that has largely and very publicly stalled. Well, I'm joined now by Julie Norman, lecturer in politics and international relations at UCL, co-director of the UCL Centre on US Politics. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Emma. Welcome back to Monocle Radio. Um, all right, so the, the, the quote is from the director of the White House Office of Management and Budget, we are out of money and nearly out of time. Why, why are they saying that? Sure. So the U.S. since the start of the Ukraine war has been pretty steadily providing different kinds of aid, military aid, as well as economic aid and humanitarian at about the cost of about $110 billion. So what we're seeing now is really an end of that funding. Essentially, the funds that have all been allocated are almost used up. There's a few billion left in the defense budget. There's still some streams of artillery being sent, but most of the aid that the U.S. has approved um, has already gone. And so this White House letter was saying to Congress, you know, this is really the last chance to get some more aid approved if we want to keep aid flowing to Ukraine at what many see as this crucial point of the um, the counteroffensive somewhat um, stalled and trying to keep Ukraine afloat in this uh, in this war. How much is the Ukraine war being used as an internal domestic political issue? Well, it's interesting, Emma. It's become much more of a domestic issue and wedge really over this last year, I would say. And we've really seen a split within the Republican Party. There are still many more so-called traditional Republicans, some would maybe call them the hawks, um, who very much support the war in Ukraine. That includes the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's been very outspoken on this. But what we see more in the House of Representatives, what we see around um, more MAGA and Trump supporters, and just the more traditionally isolated isolationist wing of the party has really been um, pushing back on any additional aid to Ukraine. That's partly just out of general, again, isolationist uh, principles, but also um, really calling on the Biden administration to um, track the aid more um, clearly, to say what they think an end game might be, um, and more recently to attach some conditions onto that, such as securing the U.S. and Mexico border. And in terms of the in the long term issues of all this, you have some was suggesting that the world is just assuming that Joe Biden will be in power next year and that he will blithely continue to feed the the, the financial support for for Ukraine but there is a you know really strong chance that Donald Trump could be elected he's promised peace in short order he said he could you know just in in a flash in an instant he could stop the conflict but he could and and a, and a republican administration could stop supplying weapons altogether couldn't it 
Well, that's exactly right. And I think uh, NATO, Europe are very well aware of that. You know, Trump is uh, doing very well in the polls against Biden right now. Again, that's a long way off. But I think, uh, you know, conversations I'm hearing is that, you know, Europe is finally starting to grapple with possible mitigation plans of a Trump presidency, what that would mean for NATO, what that would mean for Ukraine. Indeed, that administration would not even um, try and get funding through, we can assume. Um, and I would say even for Biden, he would probably be up against an even tougher Congress, even if he wins the presidency. There's a good chance Democrats will lose the Senate, which would make it even more difficult for um, for him to continue getting this kind of funding through. And the fact that the Israel-Hamas war is changing things a lot. I mean, does the US actually have the capacity to help the fighting of two wars that aren't actually its direct doing? Yeah, so it's a good question. I would say one thing that Biden has been trying to do is uh, link these conflicts in a way and trying to get the funding through. The bill that he proposed was actually linking aid to Israel with aid to Ukraine, also some aid for um, the Asia-Pacific around China and Taiwan, especially for Taiwan. So he was really trying to bundle these things together in a uh, sort of a democracy framework, if you will. I don't think many went for that, but um, we can definitely see the push to say, look, the U.S. has, um, you know, enough to kind of go around from the administration's perspective when it comes to these not only moral interests, but also or not only moral causes, but also what the U.S. sees in its own interest in protecting security in these different parts of the world. And in a, in a global context, there has been criticism that Europe lacks strategic coherence, that uh, we've seen Emmanuel Macron, as we were talking about at the beginning of this program, was, was was striking out in the last couple of days saying, look, Israel needs to think exactly what its long term plans are when it comes to the war against Hamas. It could go on for, for 10 years. Is there a sense that the West doesn't have sort of joined up thinking when it comes to dealing with major crises in, in various pockets across the world? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's always a, a challenge when we see international conflicts because each country, each region has their own interests in how they approach it. And we see that even within the EU in their approach to Israel. You know, there's not a lot of consensus uh, there. So I would say that's not uncommon. Um, and I would say for Ukraine, it's many were surprised at how long we've been able to maintain consensus there across many different interests. But that is that is starting to fray in some ways. I think Biden will be doing everything he can this year to hold that together. And certainly many uh, in Europe will as well. I point out that Europe is also facing um, you know, their own uh, uh, spoilers, if you will, for passing their own $50 billion um, aid to, to Ukraine right now also. So all this is constantly going on with the politics. And I think uh, you know, there's always this push to, to get over that. But at the end of the day, many countries will be trying to watch out for their own interests and how they deal with foreign policy. Julie Norman, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. So 
7.38 in London, 22.38 in Juneau. Now, the airline Alaska Air has said it wants to buy the troubled carrier Hawaiian Air for nearly $2 billion. Alaska sees it as a chance to secure Hawaiian's rather lucrative routes. The regulators, however, are likely to be on their guard. Well, Paul Charles is the CEO of the luxury, luxury travel PR firm, the PC Agency. I'm delighted to say he joins me from Cannes. A very good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Emma. Now, the last time I looked at my map... Hawaii and Alaska seem to be quite a long way apart. So what's the attraction here? Well, they are the 49th and 50th states of the USA, of course. And uh, there is a lot of um, synergy, there's many synergies between them, if you like. The reason that Alaska is interested in Hawaiian is to beef up their fleet. It would be 365 aircraft. And when you compare that with American Airlines, they have 900, for example. So it's still a lot smaller. But also they'd be able to offer more job opportunities. They're making a big play out of the fact that this would secure jobs for Hawaiians working at Hawaiian Airlines. And it would overall save Hawaiian Airlines. The airlines had a difficult period post-pandemic. It struggled to recover for a number of reasons, partly because of demand, partly because of events like the, the tragic fires that we saw in Hawaii, and also because of tough competition. So overall, Alaska thinks Hawaiian is an easy takeover target. An easy takeover target, but it is uh, gaining the attention of the regulators because there are fears, aren't there, that mergers between small US airlines, of which these are two, um, stifle competition. Yes, that's right. I mean, the Department of Justice under the Biden administration has taken a pretty strong, pretty firm line on uh, recent deals like uh, JetBlue, for example, and Spirit, which uh, regulators are are trying to block. Uh, I think in this particular case, Alaska may stand a chance, though. They're not buying a low-cost airline. They're buying a a frills airline, in essence. Uh, They're not taking out a low-cost competitor from the market. And that's where the Biden administration has been particularly concerned. Where the regulators may take uh, some time, though, to look at this, and it will take 12 to 18 months to to play out, is that the two airlines would have 40% market share on uh, those routes into Hawaii. That is pretty substantial for a regulator to stomach. So it may yet come a cropper for that reason. And indeed, this is going in a, in a, in a series of, of mergers which are drawing attention. There's the JetBlue Airlines trying to buy Spirit Airlines as well. Mm. Um, tell us a little yes. bit about what, what this is saying about the general uh, di- you know, direction of travel when it comes to US aviation. It's a really good question. And in fact, not just for US aviation, but global aviation in terms of consolidation. We're again seeing players try to find partners and do the dance in the aviation industry. Uh, We've got uh, airlines circling TAP of Portugal at the moment, potentially interested. You've got the JetBlue Spirit case, as you mentioned. We saw yesterday uh, a closer alignment between Turkish Airlines and the forthcoming Riyadh Air of Saudi Arabia. So we're going to see more consolidation. The question is, Will regulators accept some of these deals that are being planned? They've taken a tough line in the past two years, and I'm sure they'll continue to do so. It's interesting because there's a very good article in the New York Times, a comment piece uh, by a, a law professor in Columbia, saying if there's one lesson we've learned from the recent history of airline industries, it's this. The bigger airlines get, the worse they become. The prices get higher, the seats get smaller, and the service gets snarkier. Would you agree? <laughs> well, it's a perfectly valid opinion piece, there's no doubt. But... To give you a stat, the average fare for a flight within the United States today 
is 35% lower than it was in 2000 when adjusted for inflation. Now, that's an important point when adjusted for inflation. And I know it seems to many of us who travel that fares are just going up and up and up. But actually, the stats show that fares are down. And that is partly because of consolidation. Airline economics are under real pressure. It's not easy to run an airline and make a profit. The margins are very, very low. They're often about 2 or 3% on profit, which is really low. And so um, it's tough. So they have to do these deals to get squeeze, to squeeze any synergies they can. And that's why Alaska and Hawaii are, are bedfellows which could work. Uh, finally, Paul, you're in Cannes for a very good reason, aren't you? You're in there for an enormous luxury show. Uh, just explain the context, because it's something that um, I know that Monocle, we have a presence there this week. Just explain to us a little bit about where you are. Yes, it's not all sipping rosé and eating croissant, by the <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, right. There's work to be done. Uh, this is the uh, international luxury travel market, ILTM in Cannes, which meets every year. The, the, the big and the small, if you like, of the luxury travel industry gather in Cannes for four days to uh, meet and network and talk about the latest issues. And there are two really big issues being talked about here. First of all, technology and AI and its increasing role in, in travel. The travel industry has not been good at introducing technology um, over the years. So there's a lot of pressure on it to make things better at lower cost. And then the other thing is the future of the luxury sector over the next year or so. You have the Middle East conflict, you have talk of recession in certain parts of the world. Uh, indeed, some economies like Germany obviously facing recession. How can the luxury market, which has been under real pressure, thrive and survive over the next year or so? So it's uh, a big talking point here. Paul Charles from the PC Agency in Cannes. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You with The Globalist. Let's talk business now. Rachel Puppetzoni is national business reporter and presenter at ABC News in Australia. She joins us now from Perth. Good afternoon, Rachel. Great to be with you, Emma. Nice to uh, have your voice on the radio. Just tell us a little bit about the, the latest news from business. I think one of the big headlines was in the last day or so that Spotify is laying off staff again. Yeah, um, they're really bookending the year with layoffs, which is um, one way to do it, I guess. Uh, announcing 1,500 jobs will go, um, that announcement coming through Monday. Uh, and this is on top of the 600 jobs that were lost in January, 200 in the middle of the year. Uh, so obviously a significant number of staff um you know, walking out the door through uh, 2023, this latest retrenchment will see their workforce, 17% of their workforce uh, walk out the door. Of course, it's all about bringing costs down, um, but there'll be a bit of an initial outlay as Spotify pays out staff. They'll be getting up to five months severance, including holidays and healthcare. So that could cost the company up to 145 million euros. Now, it has just reported a third quarter profit and was looking for fourth quarter profit as well, but uh, in this announcement, uh, told the market that it's actually now expecting an operating loss of somewhere between 93 and 108 million euros. Uh, uh, so obviously, by making these staff cuts now, uh, it hopes to minimise that that loss uh, for the quarter and going forward. Uh, you might remember over the last year or so, Spotify has really sort of tried to get into the podcast market, signing big names like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, Kim Kardashian. Those things all come at a cost as well. Uh, so uh, just one of many um, tech companies that have been laying off in the last sort of 12 to 24 months. You mentioned the cost of making podcasts and, and you know, just how expensive the world is getting. But 
the the fact that Spotify seems to be experiencing such a dramatic turn of events is that reason to worry? I guess what it could also indicate is that consumer behaviour is changing as well um, as people cut costs on things that perhaps aren't as essential. So streaming podcasts or music doesn't really, um, you know, fill your belly and keep the lights on. Uh, They're the kind of things that people have to spend money on and those things are also increasing. Uh, Cost of doing business is also increasing. Wages have have been on the rise globally as well. So we're seeing, I guess, um, this change in consumer and business behaviour as we come to terms with this um, higher interest rate for longer sort of era that we have been in for a little while and will likely be in for at least a few more months to come. And 2023 has been the year where Google, Amazon and Microsoft are are losing jobs. I mean, are we looking at a wider trend here of less is more? Oh, we totally are. Uh, Analysis by um, a firm called TechCrunch actually found that about 240,000 tech jobs have been lost globally this year, and that's 50% more than last year. Uh, Also in the last 24 hours, another firm, Twilio, an app programming interface company, also announcing uh, it'll cut its workforce by 5%. That's 300 jobs going. It also made cuts in February and in September last year. You've obviously mentioned some of those big names as well, Amazon, LinkedIn, also uh, part of that cohort of tech firms really uh, cutting down their staff. It's also not just tech firms. I I think all sorts of businesses in in all sorts of facets are cutting back their sort of IT staff. And and this was a cohort that that saw huge job growth during COVID when we all started working from home and were more demanding of our um, technology. Uh, The the skills and uh, the knowledge and the resources were, were needed by businesses the world over. Now that we're sort of out of that phase, um, the the ramp up is uh, ramping down, I guess, and and we're seeing that uh, in people's livelihoods too. Um, Let's move on to another story about the, the price of gold. It is just going up and up and up. Yeah, it's amazing. We talked about this last week and it's just every day um, it is the thing that is just increasing. And this also comes back to this um, sort of global economic story. We heard from Jerome Powell, the the, uh, US chair, uh, give some very strong indication that it's likely interest rates have uh, risen as much as they need to there to control the economy in the US. This follows comments by one of his um, uh, fellow governors last week. And so that's put confidence. Uh, into the market, as well as, I guess, a change of tack for investors who, who are now sort of switching their strategies and, and throwing their money into gold. We've also seen, I guess, geopolitics help push up the gold price. Uh, of course, the Israel-Gaza war, um, we saw a lot of people flock to the safe haven of gold uh, during the, the, the onset of that uh, crisis, uh, which obviously is still ongoing. The US Fed is likely um, to even start cutting rates within the next few months, some tipping that could be as soon as March 2024. And investors think that that'll probably be good news for the gold price. So we we should expect um, the gold price to continue to 
saw next year. And I guess in sort of more modern uh, investment um, um, methods, we've also seen Bitcoin jump up to a 20-month high. It's up more than 8%, surpassing $42,000, which uh, really puts gold in the shade. Uh, But it's also um, seeing rapid investment growth. It's up 150% uh, the price so far this year. So we're seeing, I guess, a real change uh, in where people are investing as we uh, come to this rate hike cycling pause uh, as we kind of digest this new world economic order. The new world economic order, though, we, we always come back to gold, don't we? Yeah, yeah. You know, since um, since the Incas, since uh, the Egyptians, it's been it's been around for a long time. Um, uh, and and I think what's safe about it is it's a physical thing. Uh, you can hold it. Uh, people bury it in their backyards or under the bed or wherever they might hide it. It's always going to be there. Uh, whereas if you're investing in something, let's say Bitcoin, just because I just mentioned it, um, there can be huge volatility and huge swings in in those sort of non tangible things. So people like the idea that they can hold it and they can see it and they know that it's not going anywhere and that value uh, might ebb and flow, but ultimately there's confidence in that. Rachel Puppetsoni burying her gold in the back garden. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Finally on today's programme, we head to high altitude with the latest edition of our winter newspaper, Monocle Alpino, out today. Leaf through the pages and you'll find everything from cold weather dispatches to festive culture and dining tips. Well, Monocle's foreign editor, Alexis Self, sat down with Andrew Muller to talk about some of the highlights in this issue. Take a listen. Lex, first of all, you have Alpino there right in front of you. Give it a rustle. 80 pages of wintry goodness. (laughs) Absolute audio gold, uh, that was. We haven't got time to go through all 80 pages thereof, so what leapt out at you as some of the highlights of Alpino this time round? Well, first of all, this is a joy to put together. I was saying to MSL, our producer on the way, and it's like a sort of broadsheet newspaper from a kind of winter wonderland nation (laughs) where all matters are, you know, covered in snow and everyone's wearing fur and snow boots. It's really fun to put this together because, you know, we do a lot of themed magazines Mm. and issues here at Monocle, and this is themed as well, but in a very loose way. You know, it's, it's to do with the Northern Hemisphere winter. So we've, we've got pieces on Arctic geopolitics, including a report from the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik by a young Tyro Australian <laughs> reporter named Andrew Muller. I remember it well. And pieces on ski wear and cashmere. So it's the full gamut in my section, which I'm not saying is exceptional or anything, but, but we have a piece you on You can the, go ahead and say it's exceptional. It's exceptional, <laughs> as are all the other sections. There's a piece on the Corpo Nazionale Soccorso Alpino e Speleologico, can you, can you guess what that might be? How long have you spent working on that? Um, <laughs> speleology is is caving, right? Pop very holding. good, very good. Spelunking. Spelunking. As they call it That's in, where the in word the States. comes from. So this is the Italian Mountain Rescue Service, mm-hmm. which is a voluntary organisation with core all around the country. We joined one in Madonna di Campiglio in South Tyrol on the first day of the winter ski season to observe a ski lift rescue exercise 
which, if you've ever been in a ski lift, will be equal parts reassuring <laughs> and terrifying. But, you know, obviously they've got wonderful uniforms and grappling hooks. It is a thing you can always say about Italy's emergency services. Very well turned out. They look Very fantastic. Very well turned out. But also in the affairs section, we, we join reservists from the Canadian Rangers, which is a largely indigenous and First Nations unit of the Canadian Armed Forces responsible for patrolling the uh, you know more unforgiving parts of the country, such as the Arctic Far North, where they're presently engaged in the maintenance of early warning systems deep in the tundra that might detect any encroachment into North American airspace by, let's say, for example, Russia. But there's also fun stuff as well in there. There's a lovely piece by Amy Vandenberg on the books team, who is also Canadian, about the cultural significance of the moose. Amazing. At the risk of giving away the ending... How does Amy assess the cultural significance of the moose? Well, I think it's interesting. She talks about, you know, how the European settlement of Canada was, was and North America more generally, was often rapacious and, and about, you know, involved a lot of uh, killing of animals mm-hmm. and displacement of people and, and destruction of nature. And that now the country is on the whole part of, of what symbolizes it and bring it, brings it together is its you know, vast nature and and high natural beauty and mega, well, they're not mega fauna, but let's say (laughs) large fauna. They're pretty chunky when you see them up close. Yeah, and and actually there's a very nice comment about how Justin Trudeau, like the moose, is slightly dopey looking (laughs) and large, um, but also, you know, quite easy, depending on your political opinions, to kind of have a, a sort of, you know, affection and what do we have in Alpino in non-moose-related content? Ah, well, we have a big section on ski wear, how to look good on the slopes this year, the lovely piece on cashmere. There's also, of course, gingerbread home construction. There's a great photo essay from Bielovica Forest, which is Europe's largest primeval forest, which straddles the border between Poland and Belarus and has become a kind of geopolitical flashpoint Mm -hmm. in recent years because uh, the Belarusian government has, in an attempt to destabilise the EU, has sent lots of refugees and migrants over the border there. So it's become highly militarised. You know, they've built this huge, massive metal fence all the way through this, this really old forest, 100 miles through it. But it's also got this incredible natural life and it's got the largest population of European bison, Again, the, the, the ponderous ruminant seems to be a recurring theme of Alpino. Yes, and also there's a, there's a wonderful story about the Lapland Chamber Orchestra here <laughs> who brave sub-zero temperatures to take classical music to Finland's remote villages. So that's interesting. There's a piece about North America's largest ski maker. Um, As in they make the most skis, not just the, the largest skis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they're actually moose ski maker. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, there's, there is enough reading here to kind of take you through the Christmas period. I should hope so, too. That was Monocle's Alexis Self going through the magazine. He's just edited, speaking to Andrew Muller. Monocle Alpino, newspaper, not magazine, is available now on newsstands and is well worth it for the Christmas holidays. You can order your copy online at monocle.com.
And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Laura Kramer and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Callum McLean. After the headlines, more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.